Welcome, welcome. This is the Enlightenment Show, and I'm your host, Laurie Schoenfeld. Our guest today is Brooke Bafis, author of After We Were Stolen. We're going to be chatting with her today all about her new release and what fire she's lit in her life to create something new. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you, Lori, for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. Your book, we were talking a little bit beforehand, is so powerful, and I'm really excited to dive into the full creation of mm -hmm. how we brought this to be. But before we start there, what is something in your life, Brooke, that you find curious at the moment? I find curious at the moment. Um, okay, so my sister just had her second baby, and um, I had the absolute privilege and I was so happy to be able to do it to stay with her older daughter um, while my sister was in the hospital having the baby um, so my niece and also my goddaughter is two um, mm -hmm. and it's been super interesting to me to see her reaction to the new baby and the kind of I had growing up um, intense sibling rivalry with my younger sister the one who just gave birth we're good now but at the time uh, no not having it and I'm five years older than her so um, it's interesting to me to see how the older one is kind of adapting to the other one. And it's a very um, intriguing from, from a psychological point of view, which I always love to look at things. Um, very interesting process. I'm getting a lot of pictures and going over there and kind of seeing how they relate. So very curious. I'm, I'm very curious to see how it all pans out and, um, you know, evolves from here. <laughs> I love that because I'm a big into psychology, too, of how people adapt in different situations. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be, I'm the oldest, too. That would be very interesting to yes. see from a different perspective. For mm -hmm. sure. You have a new release, which is your debut. Yes, thank yes, you. After We Were Stolen. Can you share with our listeners and viewers what After We Were Stolen is all about? Absolutely. So after we were stolen is the story of Avery, who is um, growing up and has been grown, uh, brought up on a commune, um, very isolated area. She's never been off of her family's land. Um, she's a huge family. She has um, 10 siblings altogether and then her parents. And, you know, they farm their own land and they butcher their own animals and they do everything self-sufficient, completely off the grid. Um, she never thought anything of it. And She's aware of an outside world, but has never experienced it and really has no desire to um, right away on the onset. Um, so while she's in this, you know, kind of pocket of, of space with her family, um, her parents introduced kind of a new layer of obligation to her, um, which resulted in some very severe um, sexual abuse. And it is very traumatizing to her. And it is the first time she kind of, um, realizes that her life was shaped for her as opposed to being allowed to shape it herself and kind of starts to get that yearning to, to escape and to get away. And obviously she's terrified rightly. Um, and, but there's no opportunity. There's, there's a very strict punishment uh, in place for anyone who just does try to get away. And she just doesn't have the wherewithal or the resources to get out. Um, and one night a fire breaks out on the compound and burns the whole place to the ground. And she is fortunate enough to escape and she's able to escape with her biggest ally in life, which is her younger brother, Cole. Um, so together they get away and they begin a life of basic homelessness. Um, you know, they, they go through and they um, walk until they come across something, which is they come into Wichita, uh, which is where they end up um, staying for quite a while. And they 
are homeless there and they learn a new set of survival skills. Um, but when they're eventually picked up for shoplifting, um, they discover that they are not related. They were not born into the cult. They were actually abducted into it. And Cole's abduction was a huge media frenzy. And to that, to the day that he was found, people were, were still aware of the case and it was probably still an active case. Avery's was much more, um, you know, subdued. And so he's taken away from her immediately and she's kind of left to parse through her own feelings about losing Cole, about losing her previous life. How horrible as it was, it was still a loss of something she knew and was familiar with. And, you know, she's also left to kind of figure out what, what it was that happened that night and why she was the only one to get out, why Cole was the only other one to get out, um, you know, and eventually the police come to her to tell her that they have not recovered all of the bodies of all of the people who were there. So uh, there's a lot of mystery surrounding who else might've survived. Um, so obviously that's a lot of fear and, you know, it's a lot of tension for her. So the whole story kind of follows her journey into um, healing herself and also solving this mystery. I loved so many pieces that you spoke up about on many much needed topics that are hard to write, but mm. very important to talk about. But I also really found it very fascinating and interesting on the whole cult uh, culture of how you brought that in. There's so many fascinating questions there. Were you curious about the culture around having a cult, what that feels and looks like before you wrote after we were stolen? Yes. Yes. So I, this is a very, uh, this story sticks out to me um, very vividly because um, I was kind of in my, my coming of age years. I was in college. Um, I was 18 or 19 and the hell bop, bop comment was coming through and I was in New England. So um, actually a friend of mine and I drove up to Vermont, I think we went to, and we went to a big field, no light pollution, just gorgeous to see the comet go through. And it was beautiful. And I just remember that very vividly. And then about a week later, we started hearing reports of the Heaven's Gate cult who died by suicide as a result of their belief that there was uh, a spaceship on the tail of the comet. Um, huge story, huge news story. And at that time, you know, internet was like a baby. Um, you know, it was stuff that it was on TV, it was on the news, but it was so interesting to me. And then as the years went by, it just kind of stuck with me. And now there's lots of information and there's lots of documentaries and books. And so I started reading about them very deeply and I was just utterly intrigued. And then I just couldn't get enough. I was looking at every cult I could find and just the different types of cults and the situations that they, um, you know, put forth and how they're so different. And from the outside looking in, a lot of times you can be totally unaware. It's very easy to get caught up much easier than people might think. And you may, you know, look at uh, a situation like that and think, well, I would never be, you know, lured into something like that. Or I would, I, I would never, you know, be naive enough to follow someone like that, but you'd be very surprised. And a lot of the stories from survivors are just fascinating because they're intelligent people. They're people with a mind of their own, but more often than not, they were looking for something more that they thought that usually a charismatic leader could provide them. So uh, that that's where they're, you know, it's curiosity that gets them in, not so much weakness or, you know, vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I really loved how you brought in, Brooke, just different things like, you know, positive affirmations. We'll pull that piece where, you know, something that we think of can be very positive. It's meant to be, words are meant to be very positive, but when you use them in a certain way, it can kind of not taint, but change the way that you see 
wordage is becoming something that could be very negative as well that you're bringing into your life as well. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, you know, the, the, the leader in this, in this case is the father. Um, and I had a, an interesting time trying to kind of formulate the way that his situation was going to work because he was dealing with children, which is a lot different. Um, you know, initially in the early days of his particular cult, there were adults. Um, but he, quickly grasped on that children were a lot easier to control and to mold as he wanted to. And yeah, he did a lot of that. He had a lot of power in words. He had a lot of uh, mantras, a lot of, you know, um, like you said, affirmations. They have to share a sign of hope, something hopeful that they've seen or something that, you know, made them happy. And for him, it seems to be coming from a place of hope and, and kindness, but it's very sinister, especially mm -hmm. for the for the kids. It's almost like, you know, they're, they're put in this heinous situation where nothing is positive and nothing is good. They're faced with all kinds of abuse and constant work. And now they're forced to, you know, tell me something good that happened to you today. And so it's, it's almost a frightening question for them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Avery, your main character is placed in a situation that she doesn't want to be in, but is forced to be in. How did you emotionally walk through and write those topics of child abuse, sexual assault, and stillbirth? I had a hard time, uh, and I did a lot of very deep reading, very deep research, and I spoke a lot with my own therapist in regard to how to best sensitively, uh, you know, uh, present the topics. Um, I'm not. It's not something I personally experienced. Um, I did have a pregnancy loss, which I did kind of use uh, toward the stillbirth um, element of it. And, um, you know, that was a difficult thing, but it was at least a familiar thing that I felt I felt OK to write on. But in other ways, with as far as the child abuse and the sexual assault goes, I was I, in a way I felt very much like I said, I don't want to be an invader to the people who've had these experiences. And I don't want to be someone who's you know, you know, just manipulating them for the sake of a story. But I did feel like it was an important thing to speak on um, because a lot of times, you know, it's it's a very hidden thing. And a lot of people don't feel comfortable speaking on it or they don't see representation of people working through it. Um, so for me, it was very important to not only show Avery's trauma, but also her like the PTSD that followed and, and a bit of her recovery, a bit of how she kind of starts to come out of it, a little bit of hope for her. Um, and I know the ending, I'm getting uh, a lot of people, like I, I, it was sad. And I said, well, it's, you know, life is sad. And, you know, things are, aren't always happily ever, ever after. And it, it hurt me to do that, especially to characters that I really loved. It hurt me to say, you know, you're, you're going to you're be okay, but you're not going to be great at the end. Um, you know, maybe down the line, you know, as we, we, we only follow Avery to the end of a few months. So, you know, there's, I, I hope that I laid the groundwork for, for hopefulness. Um, in the end, but you know, as far as giving her a happily ever after, I just didn't feel like I could do it. I didn't feel like it was that easy. It's hard when we have these characters that we're with for a whole journey and we know they need to go a certain route, but our hearts are like, no, <laughs> yeah, want to do that. yeah. I know. And it, it's, it's, you know, you're fighting with them because they have a mind of their own. I mean, all my characters have a mind of their own. They're always doing things that I'm like, Oh, well, okay. We're going to go that way. Um, but you know, it's, you have to kind of uh, temper that. I heard a great saying and I love it so much. Um, I don't know who said this. I wish I could credit them, credit them. But, and I think I mentioned this in the, in the notes in the book, but they said that all, all um, right. Being a writer is like playing God, but all your characters are atheists. So <laughs> 
pretty much says it all to me. That is that is perfect as far as how I feel when I'm when I'm putting characters on paper. So you know, I try and respect them and what they'd like to do, and and gently guide. And you know, in this case, you know, it wasn't you know Avery wasn't seeing full recovery, and she wasn't you know seeing uh, another was Cole. I think Cole actually had a very difficult journey as well, and you know he also had a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. This is your debut novel. Congratulations, Brooke. How did your journey go so far from the idea of once you started after we were stolen to now publication? What's a few things that you walked through during that time frame? So it was so interesting because and I'm sure everybody that's heard me talk has heard this a million times, but I did enter as a result of a, a writing prompt contest that, you know, somebody sent me on Facebook, a friend of mine. And you know, I, I thought it was such an interesting, like, I was like, oh, somebody, you know, in the, in the prompt, in the, uh, my example that I used, it was uh, an example of a cult member who wakes up after her cult has died by suicide and she just happened to not, it's not that she didn't try to go with them. She just happened to survive. And I, I started to get into that mindset. And then the more I spent time with who it was Avery, eventually, the more I kind of got more out of her story and I understood more of what she was doing. Um, so, you know, getting it done, the writing was actually very pretty quick. Um, you know, once this is one of the few books and I've done a few before that that are still uh in, in the wings, but um, this is the first one I actually plot out and I put on paper and then did an outline for. I never did that before. Um, I gave her a little wiggle room, but I did try to lay it out because I knew that the timing was gonna be very important. Um, but yeah, the, the writing element of it went very quickly. The editing, of course, as always, took a lot longer. Mm -hmm. um, I, I tried a few other things. I did try to um, do a little bit of a fast forward and look at Avery a few years in the future and add that into the book, which I ended up ultimately scrapping. I just didn't think it worked. And, um, you know, we put the book on submission and I'll never forget this. This is a, I'm going to dig deep. I was just, I was very exhausted of the journey of publication. I've been writing for 12 years and, you know, it was, I was exhausted and I was feeling very hopeless in the way that you can just, you know, there's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of, um, you know, being told no repeatedly. And it was hard. It was very hard. And I'll never forget. I was on the phone again with my therapist. I actually thanked her in my, my acknowledgements because she's the best, but I was on the phone with her and she said to me, so how are things going with the book? And I was on submission at the time and it had been for a little while. And I said, please don't ask me about the book anymore. I said, because nothing's going to happen. Nothing's ever going to happen. It's it's not going to happen. And I had and I believed it in that moment. And I said, you know, and it, it, I was sobbing and just like so devastated for this loss. And I got the, the deal the next day. So <laughs> it was it was I mean, talk about learning to believe that everything happens for a reason and that things will happen when it's time. Mm -hmm. um, and I tell everybody that I talk to that's a writer or trying to get published, like, please don't do what I did. Please don't throw your hands up and cry. And, you know, it, it, it'll feel terrible. But, you know, the, it was it was it was the next day. So, I mean, mm -hmm. mind blown. And, you know, so, so, so satisfying and wonderful after all that. So and, and my editor, I could not have landed in better hands. So a very good experience overall. Mm -hmm. I love, though, that you mentioned that because we all get to a point in the creative journey of like having those moments of throwing your hands up because you can only give so much and it feels overwhelming and mm -hmm. exhausting and 
But again, you just never know what life is already yeah. creating for you. <laughs> right. You never, and, and in a way I felt like I was, I feel, I feel like I'm a character in a book myself. Like this is like a plot mm -hmm. twist. Like, oh my God, are you kidding me? You know, I got the, I get the message from my agent and I'm like, Whoa, what? what <laughs> it was just, it was just mind-blowing and it was it was in 2020 it was um the end very end of 2020 which you know was everyone's worst year mm -hmm. and so very difficult year already it was a couple days before christmas you know very chaotic time and it was my daughter's it was my daughter's birthday so you know just everything was crazy and it was it just really felt like i said i feel like i'm in a movie right now like this is this is just bizarre so you know definitely it, it allow yourself to have those moments of of little pity parties always allow it because it'll you know kind of cleanse your palate a little bit and make you feel you know better to get it out but keep your hope intact mm -hmm. what is a fire brook that you lit in your life to create something new for yourself Hmm. That's a really good question. I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say just deciding to embark on a writing career to begin with. I went to school for psychology and I really had intentions of carrying my schooling further. I did get a bachelor's in psychology and I thought, you know, I really would like to carry this further, but I just, when I got, I had my daughter um, when I was 26, I had been married a couple of years. I had my daughter, I stayed home with her for a little while. And then it was time to kind of go back to school, go back to work, get back into the swing of things. She was about two years old. And I just said to myself, you know what? I've wanted to write for so long. And if I don't start, like nothing's gonna happen. It's not just gonna fall in my lap, I have to start. So I didn't go back to school. I took a very base level admin job. I worked part-time. Um, you know, I sacrificed for my family, sacrificed a lot. My husband, you know, he was working full time and I maintained a, a part time schedule and I just started writing. And like I said, this was 12 years ago. So um, it was a, a very slow burning fire. But, um, you know, I just really wanted to do that for myself and say, at least say I tried and at least say, you know, I did sacrifice something to at least give it a shot and to at least try. And, um, you know, I, I kept staying and you know i stayed in my my admin job for a few years and then i bounced to another admin job and i just never really did any kind of uh i never really set my aspirations for work much higher but then i was writing constantly i was up at all hours of the night and i was waking up at the crack of dawn and i was writing <laughs> you know nonstop. and you know they say that you have to write a million words of junk before you get anything palatable i definitely did that um so you know i feel like that was that was a fire for me. That was the decision to strike a match and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to career root it. I'm going to try to be a creative person and see what happens. And it was a gamble. And I'm, I appreciate my husband and my family so much for supporting me in that. Um, my husband's also a very creative person. He works for a museum. So, um, you know, he understood and it, it just, um, thankfully it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> How did you take your bachelor's degree in psychology and use that to help support you with Avery and your characters within your book. So I always, um, despite not continuing my schooling, I did continue my research and I did continue learning a lot about, um, specifically, I was very interested in trauma. I was very interested in trauma re responses and reactions because there's, there's no escaping trauma regardless of what kind of a blessed life you live. Um, everyone is affected. You can think, you know, look at anybody and say, oh, they have a great life, they have a perfect life. And, you know, it's just, it's just not the case. Everyone is affected. The smallest things can traumatize, even if they're good things in some cases, you know, it, it's, it's never, um, 
something you're going to escape. So I feel like trauma is not necessarily a such a, not a hurdle that is unnecessary. It's something that shapes you as a person. Um, so I really am interested to look at, and I did a lot of research for Avery to look at how people respond and how, um, you know, things start to kind of percolate or die down or what you push away and what you allow to rise to the surface and, you know, how and when you deal with things. So I really tried to uh, give her a respectful, you know, uh, timeline of, you know, feelings and the ability just I wanted to give her room to feel all those things and to experience all those things and show them to the reader so that um, it wasn't kind of a flat like, oh, well, she, you know, had a terrible thing happen. She was abused. So obviously she's messed up. You know, I wanted to layer it a little bit more. So I did a lot of reading. Um, you know, I talked with my own therapist. I talked to my writing group a ton um, about their experiences. And I talked to other people who had experiences and, you know, it just kind of formed that way. So um, I think that that definitely that background, though, helped me. It continues to help me in everything I write. How do you think that your mind protects us from those traumatic events? There's a lot of, I mean, a lot of disassociation happens. Um, you might not know it. You might be aware of it. There's, you know, most extreme cases of people who, you know, have uh, dissociative disorders that, you know, truly do just completely black out or unable to remember. One of my favorite books um, when I was growing up was A Thousand Acres, which um, is a re modern retelling of King Lear. And um, a big theme in that is uh, incest between the father and the daughter. And the one daughter who experiences it is very angry and very, um, you know, furious in, in life in general. And her older sister has absolutely no recollection of it ever happening until she's told and completely blacked it out. And I really return to that a lot because I think that that juxtaposition is very interesting in the way that, you know, it can spurn anger or, you know, complete oblivion. Um, but in neither of those characters, it didn't, it didn't spur any kind of self-pity. They both were very, you know, um, definite about how they felt about their situation, but it wasn't. And I think in, in the book, Toby talks about this a little bit. He says, don't, don't, don't throw yourself a pity party because you'll be the only one who shows up. And, you know, um, it's, there's a difference, I think, between allowing yourself to express and feel your feelings about a situation and, um, you know, working through your own trauma and just kind of sitting back and saying, well, I was a victim of something and now that's going to be my identity. Um, you know, it should definitely be more than that. It should be something that shapes you into something better. Thank you, Brooke, so <laughs> much for being a survivor myself. I really appreciated just what you said right there of you can always shift and change <laughs> no matter what you're in, but yes. also speaking the truth in these topics as well and gaining that awareness. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, glad it's, I'm glad it's coming across that way because like I said, I didn't want to appear insensitive. I didn't want to appear gratuitous in my portrayal of, of Avery's life and her, her, you know, experiences and what she went through. Um, but I did think it was very important. It was important for her character and, you know, um, for a lot of people it's, it's, you know, to, to kind of see. And, um, I did put the trigger warning in the onset of the book to kind of, uh, head off any discomfort that might emerge from that, because I know that a lot of people, it's not something that they, you know, it's not a pleasant thing to read about. And, you know, um, but I do hope that people who do cho did choose to did see some sort of, of comfort in there. Mm -hmm. We're going to turn it to the inner child question. Oh, okay. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> First question, Brooke. 
When you were a kid or a teen, what was the fruit or veggie that you liked to pick and eat? Oh my goodness, oranges. Mm. Okay, so I'm not a vegetable person. You couldn't pay me and drive my family crazy. <laughs> I eat like I'm 10 years old to this day. I, when I was a kid, I, I my parents can vouch for me. I used to, they bring home a bag of oranges and I would eat them nonstop. And, and so I remember eating oranges to the point of throwing up because it was just so much acid I couldn't take it anymore. But I used to put them, and I still do to this day, I put them in the freezer and then let them freeze up. And then I just like have them for hours. And, you know, it's still my favorite to this day. My favorite thing is, is mm -hmm. to do that. And um, that's probably one of the most healthy things I eat because I, like I said, I have the palate of a, of a 10 year old. So that's my go-to. <laughs> So a palate of a 10 year old, do you do like your own homemade Lunchables, Brooke? Because I totally love to do that with crackers and cheese, pepperonis and, you know. Yeah, I have a real bad habit. And pretty much for lunch every day, my husband gets so, oh, my gosh, he's like, please eat something different. I have <laughs> one of the, the the mac and cheese cups that has like two inches of macaroni and cheese in it. And you mix it up and you boil it in the microwave pretty much every day. Um, <laughs> I'd say every day I eat that. Um I just buy them by the truckload. And he's like, what? he's like, they're just so bad for you. He's like, I'll make you lunch. Like, what do you want? <laughs> but um, I'm not like a, an adventurous food person at all. So, um, you know, it, it it's frustrating for everyone around me who has to like go out to dinner. And I always order a cheeseburger because I don't want to handle anything else. But um, yeah, no, if, if yeah, like you said, like snacks and things like that, like little things and, and making my own little like a uh, charcuterie situation is definitely a good thing for someone like me. <laughs> Yeah. High five to you, Brooke, because I eat like you. I'm a chicken <laughs> and nacho kind of girl all the time because it's stationary and good. And you can't really do those wrong. I mean, I yeah, it's, it's comfort food. You know, you're never going to go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what is an object that made you feel safe when you were a kid? An object that made me feel safe. So I had when I was very, I mean, too young to remember, but I had it until I was old enough to be cognizant of it. Um, I had a, a teddy bear that was, I don't know if it was a particular type of teddy bear. It was very specific looking. It was kind of stiff and he had very kind of coarse bristly fur um, and he stuck like he wasn't squishy and comfy, but his arms and legs stuck out. Um, and I, I just, it was my favorite teddy bear and I loved it. And I my mother always said, you know, I never wanted dolls. I just wanted stuffed animals. My daughter's the exact same way. So she obviously, I passed that along. But this particular bear, um, you know, I slept with it. I always had it with me. And when I was, oh my goodness, probably in my 20s, my mother had it restored. Um, so it was kind of brought back and she had it restuffed and the face put on again and the whole thing done up again so that it looked like it did. And um, so I would say that that was something that like that, that bear really, sticks in my memory something that was always around and so it was really cool to kind of get it back and now um my mother built for my daughter a a bear house that is taller than me so it's a dollhouse for bears set her house um and i he's living in there now so <laughs> he's got lots of friends in, in his bear house i love it so much i like bears too yeah <laughs> we have a few comments coming in sure. for you hi amanda welcome welcome and AB, low cherries. We had a cherry tree. Ooh, I love cherries, <laughs> cherries are my other favorite. I adore cherries. Mm -hmm. Adore them. Warm so summertime is my favorite because I can go get my cherries out of the grocery store. But yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. She also, yep. 
and the teddy. I like the teddy bear emoji with the ah. <laughs> teddy bear love. Third question. This is going to be fun because you said you're not too um, investigative with your food. So what is the oddest food combo that you've liked and tried or you've just tried? Okay. I have a horrible story. <laughs> I was younger and so I, I I don't drink because I just can't handle it. And but when I was younger, I didn't realize this about myself so much. So I was probably in my my twenties and and you know, I was at a party and you know, we, I think it was probably either a jello shop party or something similar. Um, but anyway, I started eating um chocolate chip cookies with hummus on them for no obvious reason. <laughs> Uh, they were delicious. I don't know that it's something I would go after now, but so good. And now they have dessert hummus. I kind of feel like I, I paved the way for the dessert hummuses because now you can get like brownie hummus. You can get like all kinds. And, and my daughter loves the, the chocolate hummuses and all of that. And I was like, I was doing that before it was a thing. I was eating the chocolate chip cookies with hummus uh, before it was it was cool to do so. But um, the other thing I like that I know is controversial is pineapple on pizza. I adore. Love it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also like pineapple and pizza. I have never done the chocolate chip cookie with hummus, though. So that will be fun to try. I mean, stick with the don't 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 try any like garlic or any, no. Just go original. And I use the Entenmann's chocolate chip cookies because they got a little bite of salt to them, which is delicious. So mm. at the at the time, I, I I do remember enjoying it very much. I'm gonna try because I love okay. the creamy. I'm definitely that. Let me know how you feel. <laughs> creamy so it could be we'll see oh, i'll let way. you know brooke okay <laughs> ab you can join us on the hummus cookies chocolate chip cookies if you would like <laughs> before we end today brooke what is a piece of advice that you can give to our listeners and viewers on living a creatively abundant life I think it is so important to enjoy the things that you enjoy without a fear of judgment. Um, I don't think there's such a thing as a guilty pleasure. I think if you really want to live, um, you know, to your fullest and, you know, feel everything that you're meant to feel and that you want to feel, you really need to kind of sit back and say, this is something I enjoy. I don't care what people think. If I, you know, if I want to do X, Y, Z, this is what I enjoy. I love reading books that I were my favorite when I was a kid. My husband went to a library sale two months ago and brought me back a cart and he got it for five bucks of every babysitter's club book that ever was. And I was over the moon. I'm every night in the bathtub with one of them, just hanging out, reading. And I mean, I'm like, I'm 44 years old and this is what I'm doing, but I don't care. It makes me happy. And you know, I don't, I don't think that, that you should really um, be judged for what you love, you know? And, and if it's something that you really enjoy, be it, you know, entertainment or an activity, you know, don't, don't let people make you feel bad about what you love and, and just go for it and, and do it. Mm -hmm. I love so much that he found a carton. That makes my heart so joyful. He brought home. I was like, you know what? And I was away at the time. I was editing and I had checked myself into a hotel for five days to do this massive edit on my second book that's coming out in, in August of next year. And I, I just locked myself up and I went to this hotel and he called me to tell me that. And I'm like, I cannot get home fast enough. I was like, you told me that when I'm here? Like, oh my God. Now I have to know that that's waiting for me and I could be reading right now. But um. Yeah. So it was a very cool thing. He, he's like, I got it right away. That's a good husband knowing what his wife likes and yes. a treasure for sure. 
Hi, Jesse. Welcome. Jesse said, I love that advice. Fantastic oh, thank you. Advice, Brooke. And AB has a question for you. Have you thought about After We Were Stolen becoming a movie or a mini drama? That's a great I would question. love it. I would love it. Um, I think it would do really well as a, I mean, I'll throw it out in the universe as, as a Netflix project um, because I, I really do enjoy their series and um, the way that they kind of put things out. They, they have a lot of success with their, with their, piece series. I think I would like that better than a movie um, just because it gives you more room to, to, to explore and more room for character development and more room for, you know, even if, if the plot isn't that long, you really can allow the characters to move through it and, and experience everything. Um, and people keep asking me if I um, have a cast in mind for this book and I just don't. I'm like, I can't think, like, I just, my head is not there. I have them in my head the way I see them. And I'm like, I can't picture putting, you know, so I'll leave that if, if, if should this come to fruition, I'll leave it to the casting directors and I'll, I'll just have to, you know, see what they come up with because I am absolutely at a loss as far as like they just are in my head the way that I see them. So mm -hmm. they're your dear friends. They've been yeah. sitting with you for a while. They hang out with me all the time. <laughs> Where can our listeners and viewers find you if they have any questions for you about your book after the show? So I have a website, um, brookbyfist.com. And I was telling you earlier, I'm the only Brooke Byfist on the planet Earth. So if you Google my name, you will find me. Um, so brookbyfist.com. And I have uh, my email is on there. So if anybody wants to email me, they're free to, to do so. Um, I'm on Instagram and I'm very responsive on Instagram. Um, and that's at brookbyfist. Um, I have a TikTok at brookbyfist. I've never, well, I posted one video of my cell phone when everybody was doing that cell phone aesthetic thing. But I'm on it all the time. I just don't post. So feel free to message me on TikTok. I'm sure I'll see it. I just, I just don't post, but um, yeah, and I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook author page for Brooke by Fist as well. Thank you so much for being here with us, Brooke. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about you and celebrate after we were stolen. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for all of those who have joined us live today and will be also listening on the pre-recording. We're grateful to have you here. And remember, as you go about your week, to find something that is working for you within your life. This is your story. Create something that you would like to create. You can choose whatever you want at any given point. And we will see you at this time, 12 o'clock p.m. Mountain Standard Time, on Monday, right here for our next show. Much love, everyone. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you so much, Lori.